Hello and welcome to episode number 180 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. And in this episode, we hear from Gönül Tol, director of the Turkey program at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C., and the author of the new book, Erdogan's War, A Strongman's Struggle at Home and in Syria, published by Oxford University Press. The book tells the story of how foreign policy, and in particular Syria, has played a unique role in Erdogan's political survival strategy over his two decades in power, particularly since the start of Syria's civil war in 2011. Syria has helped Erdogan construct his identity and also served as a vehicle to divide and eliminate his rivals and consolidate his base domestically. He's done this by shifting shape over time, emphasizing different shades of Islamist or nationalist ideology at different times as the circumstances have required. As Gunul Tol writes, This book tells the story of battles against domestic enemies through the lens of the Syrian conflict, which has become part and parcel of Erdogan's fight to remain in power. We dig into the various different phases of that process and where it stands today in our conversation. But before we get going, remember you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and e-books. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then good news because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Gunul Tol. I started by asking her to briefly outline why developments in Syria are so important to consider when thinking about Erdogan's political trajectory over the last two decades. Well, if you remember Erdogan's interview, I, I think it was with Charlie Rose in 2011, shortly after the uprisings in Syria started in March 2011. So in that interview, Erdogan said something that was misinterpreted by many people, both in Turkey and, and here in Washington. And he said, Syria is a domestic matter for us. Some people assume that what Erdogan meant was that, that Syria was still almost a part of Turkey, and that was a reference to Erdogan's neo-Ottomanist dreams. 
But I think what he really meant was that Turkey shared a very long border with Syria and there were cultural, historical, ethnic ties between the two countries and, and, and two societies, the roots of which went back decades and decades and to the Ottoman years. So he meant that whatever happened in Syria would have direct implications for Turkish domestic politics. And he was right. We saw that before the uprising in Syria started for many years, Syrian politics had an impact on Turkish politics. The Syrian regime's actions had implications on what, what Turkey was doing in the region and also domestically. But the uprisings in Syria, I think, brought that to a whole new level. The uprisings impacted Turkey's foreign and domestic policy in an unprecedented way. And I think the reason for that lies in the fact that Erdogan, not just obviously because of historic ties, community ties between the two countries and the long border, but also I think it lies in Erdogan's ability to to use foreign policy to advance his, his domestic agenda. So in many ways, he made Syria's war part of his domestic war against his enemies at home. We'll come on to some of the details about how that process happened. But you describe in the book Turkey's involvement in Syrian war as having basically two major periods, up to 2016, when the focus was on backing the rebels who were aiming to overthrow Bashar al-Assad, and then post-2016, when the focus has been much more on countering Kurdish groups from gaining autonomy in northern Syria. And you argue that both of these stances were basically motivated by Erdogan's domestic considerations as he tried to consolidate power in that first period through Islamic solidarity and then through Turkish nationalism. So could you just elaborate on that argument that you make in the book? Well, I would say even before the uprising started in Syria, Syria was always part and parcel of what Erdogan wanted to do at home. So when Erdogan came to power in 2002, he built an image for himself as a conservative democrat. And that was obviously an effort to allay fears that he was going to pursue Islamist policies, both at home and in the region. So in an effort to counter that argument and to show, to communicate to the wide coalition that he had put together, that he was a new man, that he was not an Islamist anymore, and he his party was a conservative democratic party. And he used Turkey's EU membership process to substantiate that claim. Now, Syria came in handy for Erdogan because up until 2011, and that was when he consolidated power, Erdogan had to tread carefully, knowing that if he wanted to survive in Turkish politics, he could not clash directly with the military. And until 2011, the military and the secularists still called the shots. Although Erdogan had won the elections since 2002, yet he knew he might have won the electoral battle, but the real question was whether he was going to win the war. So part of his strategy to win that war was treading carefully on the foreign policy front because he had learned from the experience of the previous Islamist parties that foreign policy mattered to the military. In 1995, for instance, 
one of the things that prompted a military intervention was at the time Prime Minister Necmettin Arbakan. And Necmettin Arbakan is the founder of, of Turkey's political Islam. So the military forced him out of power. And one of the reasons was a trip that he made to the region in Libya, where the Libyan leader Gaddafi insulted Turkey for being a secularist country and for suppressing the rights of, of Kurds. And, and also Erdogan, Erbakan's stance vis-a-vis Iran really unnerved the secularist establishment at home, and that was one of the reasons for his ouster. So that was a lesson learned by Erdogan the hard way. So when he came to power, he realized that he could not take that route. He could not clash with military directly. So he had to tread carefully, particularly in the steps that he was going to take in the region because, because the military was watching. So that's why in his regional policies, he respected the military's red lines, which were basically preventing Kurdish separatism and uh, preventing the spread of political Islam. So those were the two red lines military's red lines, and Erdogan made sure that he respected those red lines. So he only advanced relations with Syria only after he secured the cooperation. He made sure that the Assad regime was in full cooperation with Turkey in its fight against the PKK. So he basically cultivated closer relations with Syria, but it was mostly a relationship that uh, depended on trade and economic partnership. So there were there were no references to common ties, Islamic ties. He did not refer to the Ottoman past. So those were Erdogan's attempts to make sure that he burnished his image as a conservative democrat and he did not provoke the military to step in using his, his regional policies as an excuse. So Syria from the get-go was part of Erdogan's calculations to stay in power and advance his agenda at home. So in 2011, when the uprisings in Syria started, Erdogan had already consolidated enough power and he was done with the conservative democratic identity. So he turned to Islamism in an effort to secure enough support from the conservative segments of the country for his efforts to switch to a presidential system that would grant him unprecedented powers. And that's why I think he saw the Arab uprisings, which led to pave the way for the rise of Islamists. So he saw the Arab uprisings as an opportunity to advance his domestic Islamist agenda beyond Turkey's borders. And I think that was one of the reasons why he threw his support behind the Islamists opposing Arab dictators. That's why he, he pursued a policy of Islamization both at home and also in, in, in Turkey's regional affairs, particularly in Syria, from 2011 onwards. But that changed in 2015 when he realized after his party lost parliamentary majority in 2015, June 2015 elections, he realized that Islamism was not going to do the trick for him. So he turned to nationalism. He allied himself with Turkish nationalists, and that dramatically changed his policies and his priorities in Syria. Whereas before 2015, his number one priority was toppling a regime that he called godless Alevite regime. From 2015 onwards, his priority switched to curbing the advances of the Kurds, both in, in Turkey and in Syria. 
So I argue that Syria has always been an important component of Erdogan's efforts to stay in power and to advance his domestic agenda. But couldn't it be looked at in another way that, you know, the reason that Erdogan shifted his focus to countering the Syrian Kurds around 2016 was because of the material changes on the ground in Syria by that point of the war. So by then, you know, the YPG or, or PYD had gained much more autonomy in northern Syria. And that ultimately is a significant threat to Turkey's traditional conception of national security. And 10 years ago, at the start of the Syrian war, those same groups didn't really pose that threat. But then due, obviously, to the emergence of ISIS and their role in the campaign against ISIS and the support that was given to them by the US to that end, they did become this much bigger problem viewed from Ankara. So that was why in 2016, Turkey started focusing uh, focusing on it. And then, obviously, Turkey staged that series of military operations, which did also, as you say, coincide with the nationalist shift domestically. So what do you make of that argument? that it wasn't just these domestic factors, it was also the material factors on the ground in Syria that encouraged Turkey to shift its its stance. And that was what, you know, encouraged Erdogan to shift his calculations. Well, actually, in the book, I'm making the argument that there is a a two-way relationship between Erdogan's Syria policy and what was happening on the ground. So I argue that the steps Erdogan took in Syria shaped the dynamics of the war, but also the developments on the ground in Syria shaped Erdogan's calculations too. So it was a two-way relationship. So Erdogan, I would say not 2016, but 2015, that was the year when he formed this alliance with the Turkish nationalists. And that was in uh, after June 2015 elections. Again, that's, that was when Erdogan's party lost its parliamentary majority. That was the first since 2002. So that was a dr- dramatic development for Erdogan. And he switched to an alliance with the nationalists, thinking that that would secure him enough votes to switch the country's parliamentary system to a presidential system. Now, why did he think that way? And I think here the developments in Syria played a big role. Before Erdogan or or Turkey resumed the fight against the PKK in the summer 2015, there was a peace process going on in place between Turkey, Turkish state and the PKK. There were skirmishes here and there, but the ceasefire was largely in place. So Erdogan's thinking, the reason why he launched this peace process with the Kurds was that he really thought that he could secure Kurdish backing for his presidential dreams. He thought he could appeal to the Kurds using the narrative that they were part of the Islamic nation, the Islamic Ummah. So he thought that his domestic agenda of creating a Muslim, Sunni Muslim nation would appeal to both conservative Turks and conservative Kurds. So launching a a Kurdish peace opening was part of that agenda. And it worked fine. Remember, in 2013, during Gezi protests, uh, different segments of the country took part in those protests, but Kurds were largely absent. And the reason was that ongoing peace process between the Kurds and the Turkish state. So the Kurds thought if we take part in the protests, then the, the peace process is going to be over. So with the peace process, Erdogan largely secured the backing of the Kurds. 
until the developments in Syria changed the way Kurds thought about what they wanted from Erdogan. So critical in that process was the Kobani protests. Kobani is a northern Syrian town. In 2014, ISIS had encircled the town and many people expected a slaughter when ISIS captured this, this Kurdish town. And the Kurdish militia was holding the town at the time, fighting against ISIS. And Erdogan was not reluctant to open the border so the, Kurd, the Turkish Kurds could join the fight in Kobani. Erdogan's thinking at the time was that he wanted to use that as a leverage to force President Obama to make a change in his Syria policy. Erdogan had always demanded a more forceful Syria policy to topple the regime, and it was not forthcoming. So he thought that he could use that as a trump card to push Obama's hand. So that was the reason he was reluctant, one of the reasons why he was reluctant to help the Syrian Kurds fighting against ISIS. And that stance, that inaction in the face of the ISIS slaughter prompted protests in Turkey. So that was a time when I believe Erdogan alienated many Kurds, including conservative Kurds who had traditionally voted for Erdogan. So that was a breaking point for many Kurds in Turkey. Another turning point came when the Obama administration decided to airdrop weapons to the Syrian Kurdish militia fighting against ISIS. So that was a turning point because the Kurds thought, here we are on the verge of establishing a Kurdish state after decades and decades of fight. So we are there and we are backed by the United States. So that really, in a way, boosted their confidence. And many Kurds at the time thought that we are not going to settle for the cosmetic changes that Erdogan is offering us. We want more. So it boosted the Kurdish confidence, but it also increased the anxiety of the Turks who were watching the U.S. deliver weapons to what they consider a terrorist organization, an existential threat to the survival of the Turkish state. So you have this dynamic going on, Kurds increasingly confident in their ability to establish a Kurdish state, and you have Turks who fear that their worst fears are, are coming true, thanks to, to U.S. help to the Syrian Kurdish militia. So those dynamics, I think, paved the way for Erdogan's alliance with the Turkish nationalists. He thought that looking at the Kobani protests by the Kurds, Kurds are never going to back my presidential dream. And of course, adding to that concern was Selahattin Demirtas, who was the leader of the co-chair of the pro-Kurdish party in Turkey, Selahattin Demirtas, months after Kobani protests, declared that he was not going to let Erdogan become the president. So that pledge really rallied the Kurds behind Selahattin Demirtas and also the Turks who were opposed to Erdogan's dream of establishing autocracy. So all those things told Erdogan that Kurds were never going to back his dream to establish a super presidency. And he thought that he could boost Turkish nationalism, he could capitalize on the fear and anxieties of Turkish nationalists to get what he wanted. So going back to your question, Erdogan's policies both shaped developments on the ground in Syria, but also were shaped by developments in Syria. You say in the book at one point, quote, the chaos in the neighboring country, Syria, offered 
Erdogan many opportunities to strengthen his grip at home. From the start of the Syrian uprising until 2015, the Syrian war helped Erdogan's aspirations to cast himself as the protector of Islam and Muslims and his opponents as obstacles to true democracy and the will of the people. It strengthened his narrative that Turkey was on a holy mission to help oppressed Muslims across the world rebel against their oppressors and that he needed unimpeded powers to lead Turkey on that mission. From 2015 onwards, Erdogan capitalised on the developments in Syria to rally the nationalists behind his plan to establish an executive presidency by adopting a heavy-handed military approach to the Kurdish question. But the days when the conflict in Syria strengthened Erdogan's hand in his war against his domestic opponents are over. So could you just describe why you make that case that the situation in Syria is no longer strengthening Erdogan's political hand and in fact may even be harming it? What are the factors behind that argument? I think the turning point came in 2019 and that was the time when we all realized that the nationalism Erdogan had been boosting since 2015 was coming back to haunt him. 2019-2019 was significant because that was the year when Erdogan's party lost almost all major cities in local elections, in municipal elections. That was a shock to Erdogan. I don't think he he expected that. And the number two reason for Erdogan's loss was this growing nationalist fear about the millions of Syrian refugees living in the country. So the public opinion polls conducted at the time, particularly in Istanbul, and Istanbul is a city that's very critical, very important to Erdogan, because that's the city where he launched his his political career as the mayor of the city in, in the 1990s. And he once said, if we lose Istanbul, we will lose Turkey. So Istanbul was critical for him personally, but also as the financial capital of of the country, it was an important city for Erdogan because that basically fed Erdogan's clientelistic network. So in 2019, among other cities, Istanbul was one of the cities that Erdogan lost and he could not accept the result. So he called for a, for a rerun and he in the rerun, he lost even by a bigger margin. And the public opinion polls conducted right after that loss in Istanbul told us that the number one worry that voters had was economic problems, unemployment, the growing economic crisis. But the number two worry the voters had was the presence of millions of Syrian refugees in the country. And that was the first time that the refugee issue became one of the top issues in the minds of the voters. So I think that revelation was very important. And I think Erdogan saw that as well, because a few months after 2019 local elections, Turkey launched another military incursion into Syria. And Erdogan framed the military incursion as his solution to the country's growing refugee problem, because he pitched that as as Turkey's efforts to establish a deep and, and long enough zone that could host millions of Syrian refugees. So I think 2019, again, the election loss there told us 
that the refugee issue was going to be Erdogan's soft underbelly in the months and years to come. And the nationalism that he had boosted worked for him when the target of that nationalism was the Kurds. Remember, Erdogan's alliance with the Turkish nationalists did wonders for him. Thanks to that alliance, he managed to win the referendum. He could be able to switch to uh, the presidential system. So that alliance did many great things for him. And the nationalist fear that the Kurds were going to carve out an independent Kurdish state backed by the United States. So capitalizing on that fear, on that nationalist fear, helped Erdogan consolidate his rule. But 2019 told us that Turkish nationalism was not going to do the trick anymore. And in fact, Turkish nationalism was going to, to hurt Erdogan because now that nationalism had found a new target, and that was the Syrian refugees. And this is not to say that Turkish nationalists were not concerned about Kurdish separatism anymore. But I believe the fear, the nationalist fear that the Syrian refugees were posing to Turkish culture, to Turkish society, and some even suggested that many years from now, the Syrian refugees were going to demand the same thing as Kurds, an independent state carved out of Turkey. So now I think we started seeing a new fear emerging among the nationalist base, and that was the fear of, of Syrian refugees. So that's why I think we're now seeing a far-right party emerging, and the number one and the only issue that they tackle as a political party is the Syrian, the Syrian refugees. And there is another party, the E-party, the good party, that, that's a splinter party from Erdogan's nationalist allies. It's one of the, the fastest growing parties in the country. So you see the, the emergence of a, a nationalist bloc that opposes Erdogan. That was not the case when Erdogan cultivated this alliance with the nationalists in 2015. The nationalist base was pretty much monolithic in the sense that the majority and overwhelming majority backed Erdogan. But here we are in 2019, the nationalist base is more fragmented and the rise of a nationalist opposition to Erdogan's rule. So that's why I think the war that's ongoing in Syria is not providing opportunities for Erdogan anymore. It's, it's become his soft underbelly because there is now a growing anxiety, growing nationalist backlash against the Syrian refugees and many people rightfully accuse Erdogan's missteps in Syria as the reason for the presence of, of, of refugees in the country. Now let's come on to this question of regional normalization, because we're in this period now of diplomatic rapprochement with Turkey normalizing ties with various powers in the region, including UAE, Saudi Arabia and others. Previously, obviously, ties were roiled by this big ideological divide where Turkey supported various Islamist forces against status quo powers across the region. And you say in the book at one point that, quote, I argue that Islamism is not the chief reason for the country's degeneration into autocracy or Turkey's troublesome foreign policy under Erdogan. It's only one of the many factors that have taken Turkey to where it is now. And foreign policy has played a more complicated part in that process than has been accounted for. I believe not enough attention has been given to the function of foreign policy in the country's authoritarian transformation. 
So this downplaying, basically, of Islamism as a determining ideological factor seems pretty astute, really, considering the recent regional normalization where Turkey has basically discarded many of its old political Islamist claims in favor, really, of more economic and diplomatic cooperation for whatever reason. So could you just reflect on that and what that transformation that we've seen over the last year or two, what that tells us more broadly about Erdogan's foreign policy strategies? Well, that also goes back to the main argument of the book, which is one of the main drivers of, of Erdogan's foreign policy is his domestic calculation. So domestic policy drives whatever he's doing on the foreign policy front. So what he's been doing in the last few years, again, points to the fact that he is trying to normalize relations with regional countries and with also with the Western world, with, with the United States, mainly because of his domestic concerns. Because I think normalization efforts came after Erdogan realized that this ultra-nationalistic, militaristic, unilateralistic foreign policy that he had been pursuing after the Arab uprisings, but particularly after the failed coup of 2016, were not helping him. To the contrary, it was undermining his standing in the region and also in the world. So I think that realization is the main driver of Turkey's normalization efforts with, with regional countries, because he realized that all the missteps that he took on the foreign policy front marginalized him to the point where he alienated main trading partners in Europe, in the West. So I would say the economic problems that he faced at home, coupled with his losing ground in the polls, I think forced him for a recalibration of foreign policy. So again, the point is domestic calculations lie behind his foreign policy moves. And Syria is also mentioned as a potential prospect for rapprochement, though obviously there are still many more hurdles in Syria than in other cases. But once again, we could argue that that potential diplomatic process with Damascus is also motivated by domestic considerations, as you're saying, because obviously one of the main motivating factors that is mentioned on the Turkish side, whether it's realistic or not, is this idea of just sending back Syrians. Of course, there are almost four million, maybe more, in Turkey at the moment. And as you've been describing, it's become a very unpopular issue within the country. And part of the thinking behind, you know, potential rapprochement with the Syrian regime is that, you know, that will somehow, the details are a bit hazy, but how, that will somehow lead to people moving back and therefore solving this problem for the government. And the other issue that is often mentioned behind that potential rapprochement is cooperation between Ankara and Damascus against the YPG. So seems pretty ambitious. And like I say, it's, uh, it's a more difficult case than other regional rivals in terms of normalization. But what do you make of the, the prospects for that process between Ankara and Damascus? Is it realistic or is it just a bridge too far? No, it's actually quite realistic. If you look at it from Erdogan's point of view, it's not surprising at all if you consider what Erdogan has been doing in Syria since 2016. So in 2016, a month after the failed military coup in, in Turkey, Turkey launched a military incursion into Syria. 
and several military incursions after that. And the main goal of the military incursions was to curb the Kurdish influence in Syria. So Erdogan used that to demonize Turkey's legitimate Kurdish opposition, the the pro-Kurdish party in the parliament. And he also clamped down on Kurdish civil society. So he used that brilliantly to basically sideline his opponents at home. But those military incursions into Syria came at a cost for the Syrian opposition, for the anti-Assad opposition. Because since 2016, everything Erdogan has been doing in Syria, as part of the Astana process, by the way, has strengthened the regime's hand militarily. And that was a quiet understanding, part of a quiet understanding, I believe, between Erdogan and Assad, that as Assad would, would look the other way when Erdogan attacked the, the Syrian Kurdish militia. So that was the understanding. And in, in return, Erdogan basically weakened the opposition, the anti-Assad opposition. If you look at the fall of Aleppo, for instance, which many people considered the beginning of the end for the Syrian opposition or for the quote-unquote the Syrian revolution. The fall of Aleppo came after Erdogan basically enlisted the Syrian opposition in his fight against against the PYD and convinced the Syrian opposition that it was it was best to withdraw or to hand Aleppo to the Syrian regime. And he did that in, in other parts of, of Syria. And again, this was part of the Astana process. And all the mechanisms that were set by uh, the Astana process, such as ceasefires, creating ceasefire zones, and uh, the negotiated settlements between the opposition and the Assad regime. Turkey encouraged that. Turkey was part of that. And as as a result of those mechanisms, the Syrian opposition weakened and uh, the, the Syrian regime, the Assad regime, consolidated its military gains on the ground. So that was all thanks to the U-turn in Erdogan's policy in Syria. So his priority from 2015-2016 onwards became curbing Kurdish influence in Syria. And that came at the expense of his other goal, which was toppling the regime. So toppling the regime has not been part of Erdogan's agenda, maybe in narrative, yes. But if you look at Turkey's actions in Syria, Everything that Turkey has done since 2016 empowered the regime. So given that background, it's not surprising to hear from Turkish officials that normalization with the Assad regime is a possibility. So from Erdogan's point of view, it's it's quite realistic because the opposition has been attacking increasing pressure on Erdogan's Syria policy because of the nationalist backlash against, against the Syrian refugees. So Erdogan sees this as the only option. And in fact, I'm expecting another military Turkish incursion into Syria before the elections in June 2023. Because given high high that refugee issue is on on voters' agenda, Erdogan could frame this military incursion as a solution to the refugee problem, and he could score votes, he could score points. So I think another military incursion into Syria would be Erdogan's last ditch attempt to use the war in Syria to advance his his domestic agenda. But I'm not sure whether it's going to work. And something else you speculate on a bit in the book is a potential for other arenas to emerge. You know, So if rapprochement with Syria is on the cards, the question emerges that perhaps attention may be switching elsewhere. 
perhaps, for example, to Greece. Because you, as I say, speculate at the end of the book about whether Erdogan will turn somewhere else to basically scratch the itch of conflict in order to consolidate support and, and remain in power, basically. So could Greece, could Greece also play that role before elections next year? I'm sure Erdogan is entertaining that idea, but I would say that he wouldn't succeed because Greece does not resonate the same way as, as Syria did in the minds of, of Turkish voters. And I think p- people have seen this, this movie before and, and the opposition, to their credit, made this point clear finally when they said that whatever Erdogan is doing in Syria, he's doing this to advance his autocracy at home. So making that clear, I think now, clarified many things in the minds of Turkish voters. And in fact, there was, again, another public opinion poll conducted in Turkey recently after the the tension between Turkey and Greece flared up. And the respondents said this increasing tension between the two countries was geared towards elections. So they can now see through what Erdogan is doing with with foreign policy. So another tension or even a a hot conflict, because many people speculate speculate that that's not really far-fetched, that that, uh, a a conflict is probable before before the elections. Uh, But I don't think, I think we're past that point where Erdogan used foreign policy masterfully to, to rally the nationalists voters behind his agenda. I think we're past that point. First, because there are there are real problems that the people face on a daily basis. And the number one is, is the economic crisis. And second, people have seen it time and again uh, when Erdogan used, used foreign policy to distract from, from domestic problems and mobilize the nationalist base. So I don't think it will have the same impact that Turkish incursions into Syria did uh, from 2016 onwards. Now, just to conclude, you're based in Washington, D.C. and speaking from there today. And you've seen this rapid plunge in ties between Ankara and Washington in recent years firsthand. And that plunge in ties has really been exacerbated by the war in Syria. Indeed, you could even argue that that really is Syria, the situation on the ground in Syria and the dynamics at play have been the main catalyst behind this huge decline in trust between the two sides. And we've seen over the last couple of years, uh, President Biden basically trying to take this hands-off approach to Turkey, trying to diffuse the situation as much as possible by essentially not engaging Erdogan. So I just wonder if you could finish by speculating a bit, you know, what is what do you see in the next year or two in Turkey-US ties, the many issues that are roiling relations Let's not go down a list here, but I'm sure people are familiar. I mean, how do you see, do you see any prospect for optimism on that front? Or do you just see that things are going to continue to be pretty rocky between the two sides for whatever reason? Well, I think the days of, of strategic partnership, Turkey strategic partnership are gone. And I, I think, as I argued in the book, Syria is the graveyard because that fateful decision, Obama's decision to to arm the Syrian Kurdish militia became the turning point. And also from from the U.S. point of view, by the way, Turkey's actions in Syria played a critical role in the the two two countries' problems. Because from U.S. point of view, Erdogan was unwilling to, a NATO, NATO partner was unwilling to allow the United States to use 
the military base in the fight against ISIS. Eventually, Erdogan made the decision to allow U.S. to use use Injuli air base, but he dragged his foot for so long that really created a lot of frustration here in Washington. And there were others in, in the U.S. administration who had a darker view of what Erdogan was, was doing in Syria. Many thought that he was turning a blind eye to ISIS activities within Turkish borders, and others went even further, saying that, that Erdogan was willingly arming radical elements in Syria. So that created a lot of frustration vis-a-vis Turkey in Washington. From Erdogan's point of view, the United States, uh, Turkey's NATO partner, was arming a, a terrorist organization that, that had been waging a war for decades against the Turkish state. So that gap, I think, is here to stay, that both parties lost faith in each other's ability to continue the strategic partnership. So I think those days are gone. But I think there are other reasons why the relationship between the two countries is never going to be the same. And by the same, I I talk about, again, not just the Cold War years, but the years after that, when the two countries saw each other as critical to their own interests. And the reason, I think, lies in the way the United States sees its role in the world. There's a lot of soul searching in Washington. You have people who talk about, and actually that's not new, started with President Obama when he talked about abandoning the goal of of nation building abroad and focusing on nation building at home. So that's a theme that's being entertained by by many people in this country. And it is, I would say, pretty popular too. In in the face of that, when, when so many people are questioning whether the United States should play an as active role as it did during the Cold War years in, in world affairs, when there's such a debate, I think it's only inevitable for American presidents to to entertain that idea and to incorporate that idea into their foreign policy thinking. So this administration, President Biden, for instance, uh, I think he also understands the limitations of U.S. power in the world, and he really wants to focus on what's happening inside the country, although the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the U.S. response to that might make you think that he embraced uh, U.S.'s international role. But I think the those who are pushing for a more isolated foreign policy they are still there and they have a strong voice. So I think against that background, you can understand why the United States does not see Turkey the same way as it did before. Mainly because I think the the attention, the focus of attention of U.S. diplomacy, foreign policy has been shifting. And Turkey casting itself a Middle Eastern power after the Arab uprisings is seen by many here as a Middle Eastern country. And when it does pursue an active policy in other places like the the Black Sea, for instance, Eastern Mediterranean, it's largely seen as a problematic partner. So that's why I would say the things, the developments in Syria and also the way the United States sees itself and its role in the world, those are the two things that really make it difficult for, for the two countries to go back to the golden years where the two considered the, the partnership as essential to their national interests. That was Gönül Tong. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 180.
Don't forget, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts, or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, let me once again remind you to check out the Friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more, and they've also started publishing high quality original on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.